You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Next up is Eric Holder, a civil rights leader, former U.S. Attorney General, and the author of Our Unfinished March. Really pleased to have you on this conversation. Now is such a great time to talk about what's happening in our country related to democracy. I read your book, The Unfinished March, which I went into it because I'm not a policy wonk. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be hard. This is going to be really, really hard. I'm going to skip through and get nuggets from each chapter and, and get a little taste. And that's the exact opposite of what I did. I actually listened to it on Audible, and it actually helped me quite a bit understand sort of the connection historically to now and more completely what we're facing in this country. So I just want to thank you for that and thank you for making it accessible for someone like me. No, you know, it's interesting you say that because um, the first couple of chapters that I wrote at the beginning of the process really kind of sounded kind of came out sound like a, like a law review article and the hope that i had along with my you know co-author sam Koppelman, was to come up with a book that would be the word that you used um accessible because i, I didn't i wanted people to somehow you know focus on the history of the vote as we talk about in section one kind of where we are now in section two and then focus also on the you know proposals that we have in the set in the third section of the book um, but to do it in such a way that you didn't have to be a policy wonk to, you know, find, you know, interest in in it or find joy in in, in the reading. And um, I, I think that, you know, we've we've accomplished that. But so it's really good to hear you say that, you know, you found the book to be accessible because that was one of the primary that was one of the primary goals. Yeah, I think I think it is. And, you know, the the environment that we're sitting in is so concerning. I know even leading into our last election here in Minnesota. Um, there's just these nuances that are very difficult to explain. And you talk a lot about the distance from where the electorate is to where, like, what's happening in politics. So it feels like there's such a disconnection from what people are asking for on the ground to what's happening in our government and in policy setting right now. And I was particularly concerned, and our state was particularly concerned, about our younger Black male voters. And it just feels like it's not voter education. It's just like, yo, like none of it is actually working for me. So I'm just going to like not participate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we hear a lot from young people generally, you know, young black men, I think in, you know, in, in particular. And what I've tried to always say is that, you know, your vote matters. And if it didn't matter, uh, people on the other side wouldn't be doing as much as they are trying to do to make it difficult for you to vote or to somehow eradicate um, the impact, the effectiveness of your vote once you actually, once you cast a, a ballot. But, you know, we, we also have to dial in, I think, some honesty here that, you know, our political system has not been as responsive to the people as it should be, it should always be because of, you know, partisan and, and racial gerrymandering, you know, voter suppression, attacks on our electoral infrastructure. Um, we have governmental structures that don't necessarily reflect the will of the people. And I think we have seen that, you know, most uh, most particularly in where we are now with regard to reproductive um, issues, with regard to choice. 
uh, where the American people, you know, in every state poll that was taken, um, said they did not want Roe versus Wade overturned. And that's, you know, true in every state. Now, margins would be different in, say, Texas than in maybe in, in, in New York state. But nevertheless, Supreme Court did what it did, I think, in, in a terrible decision. And now we see state legislatures putting in place these really draconian um, and, and not publicly or not popularly supported um, measures to really restrict um, a, a woman's right to choose, you know, without exceptions and, and, and a whole range of things that, that, are, that are being done. And I understand how that makes people, particularly young people, think that, well, you know, the die is cast. Um, I can't do anything that's going to affect um, the kind of change that I want or have governmental policies that are responsive to the needs that, um, that I have. And what, what we try to say in the book is that, you know, every generation of Americans has been faced with these democracy challenges. You know, they vary from era to era, but every generation has met the challenge of its time. And I don't think that this generation will fail in its duty to meet the challenges of, uh, of our time. But convincing young people, you know, that, um, <laughs> that they've got to be involved in the process is something that is a challenge. And people, young people don't understand that they are now the largest voting block in the country, 18 to 29 year olds, largest voting block in the country. And they have more power than any other, um, any other voting block, but they leave a lot of power you know, on the floor because they don't engage in our civic life and most particularly don't vote in the same proportions as my generation. Baby boomers, we have more power than we are entitled to because we vote to a much greater, in a much greater proportions um, than, than, than young people do. In the book, you give what I think is a wonderful example of some activism at North Carolina AT&T. And when I was reading it, and even when I'm listening to you talk now, I wonder if there's enough examples of how organizing and power of young people is actually moving um, policy, maybe not on a at scale, but in the areas that they're in, whether or not we could do more there to share those stories, because I thought that was a fantastic story. You see, and I think that point is is exactly right. I mean, you know, so to the extent that people generally, young people in particular, think, well, I can't affect change. Um, the system is rigged against me. Well, you look at that young woman, Love Caesar, uh, at, you know, at North Carolina A&T, who with a piece of chalk, you know, drew a line down the middle of the campus. North Carolina A&T is the largest African-American, largest, you know, historically black college or university in, in the country. But it was gerrymandered um, by the Republicans in North Carolina. One half of the campus was in one congressional district. You know, the other half of the campus was in another congressional district. Um, you know, if you changed dorms over the course of the year. Um, you went from one congressional district to another, you weren't registered to vote you know, in, in one or, or, or the other. She saw this, um, recognized that that diluted the power of that substantial African-American community, drew a line right where the line was drawn that split the campus. Kids got up the next day and said, what's this chalk line, what's going on here? And she explained to them, you know, our power is being diluted by, as a result of this partisan gerrymander. She got in touch with us at the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. We filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit was ultimately held up um, by the Supreme Court of North Carolina, and the lines were redrawn. And the campus was all put into one district, and they ended up electing a person uh, who was more 
consistent with the values that the students had at North Carolina A&T. And so that's the power of one young woman, Love Caesar, with a piece of chalk who made a difference um, in the North Carolina uh, political system, elected a congressman who otherwise would not have been a member of uh, the United States House of Representatives. And so telling those kinds of stories, uh, I, I think is really important, not only to give her the credit that she's due, but to make people understand that the power of the individual is, is still of consequence. I know growing up, I didn't have as much opportunity as I wish growing up in our educational system to learn about our history. As a, you know, as a Black person, I did not hear sort of the diversity of history, the extent in which I should have understood the, what SNCC was doing, the organizing, um, the leadership that was coming from our community at, at really important moments in really important ways. I just had a conversation with a guy named Jesse Leon, and he said, the first time I saw Eyes on the Prize was when I was in a community college. He's like, why isn't every kid in this country learning about this stuff earlier? And so uh, in the book, you talk about being, I think it was around 12 years old and watching sort of the civil rights movement unfold. And I imagine that that was pretty informing to your upbringing and where you landed. I used to always feel very jealous about your generation and, and felt like I missed something, but it feels like we're in a moment now. So I'm wondering if you could just share sort of maybe a little bit of history of what you witnessed around voting and participating that did help us ground um, our listeners on who you are, what you're what you're motivated by, but also what our opportunity might be. Yeah, no, it's interesting. We look back at history, again, generally, and the civil rights movement, I think more specifically, in kind of a gauzy way. You know, people think about the civil rights movement and, and a great speech that Dr. King gave at the March on Washington in 1963. Um, and we tend to not remember that a, an animating part of the civil rights movement, uh, really, really the glue of the civil rights movement, was the fight for the right to vote. And, and, you know, 63 civil rights movement also talked about, you know, economic empowerment, jobs and things like that. But when you think about the Selma to Montgomery march, that was all about the right to vote. Um, the, 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 the Freedom Summer in 1964, when those three civil rights workers, Cheney, Schwerner and Goodman, lost their lives, they were trying to register people to vote in um, Mississippi, the, the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. Um, this is the Voting Rights Act of 1965, all about, again, you know, the right, um, the right to vote, to, to enfranchise, you know, a segment of our population that, though free for 100 years back in, in the 60s, um, never really enjoyed the full benefits of their, of their citizenry. And I had the opportunity, just given by when I was born, to see all of this stuff on a small black and white television. Um, you know, we didn't have color TV back in those days. Um, you know, in New York City, in my basement, to see, you know, the March on Washington, to see my sister-in-law denied the opportunity to um, integrate the University of Alabama, or an attempt to stop her from integrating the University of Alabama in 1963, to see the the Edmund Pettus Bridge incident in 1965, uh, to see uh, African countries becoming independent, Caribbean countries where my uh, all of my relatives are from, you know, become independent. And so I was able, I was just, you know, a, a young, young guy, 12, 13, be, you know, beginning my teenage years in the midst of, uh, of all of this. And so I lived it. 
And we have to make sure that people understand in ways that they do not. Um, the fact that the civil rights movement ended a system of American apartheid, you know, an American apartheid system was destroyed by the um, by the civil rights movement. And we need to have the understanding that, you know, black history is in fact American history and that what happened in the civil rights movement changed this nation even beyond uh, the impact that it had on African-Americans. It engendered in other groups of people, women, the desire for recognition and rights, the LGBTQ community, the, uh, the desire for recognition and the acquisition of, uh, of, of rights. All of that stuff was unleashed by the, uh, the civil rights movement. And so we need to study it. We need to understand it. We need to make it a part of our regular curriculum, not have, you know, we need to have, as I said in a speech, a Black History Month um, because we don't do enough teaching of Black history and the civil rights movement in our regular um, history courses. But we need to get to a place where a Black History Month perhaps is not needed because we are studying, studying and understanding Black history through the uh, teaching in our regular curriculums. You mentioned the um, GLBTQ community, and I just want to acknowledge yet another tragedy that has happened over the weekend. Um, our uh, producer, our co-producer of, of this podcast, Supak, um, needed to take time today um, because she belongs to that community and she's just devastated um, by the level of hate and the violence that was perpetrated once again, um, an act of you know domestic terrorism. Do you think that um, there will be a time where we won't see that happening? Is it because we're so polarized or? No, it's not a function of this time. Hate is a virus. And it's in the American body politic. And unless we are aware of its existence and take measures to, to suppress that virus, you know, inoculate ourselves periodically against that virus, it will rear up. And as we have just seen again um, with that, um, that most recent and, and, and heinous attack, uh, we will see it again. Now, you know, some periods in our history are more infused with hate than, than others. Um, and I think it's because, you know, we let our eye off that virus and, you know, we allowed it to, to fester. And, and, and I think, unfortunately, at least one segment of our political population thinks that by dividing us, um, by speaking um, about groups of people in, in, in hateful ways, um, that it will serve them, serve their political interests without taking into account um, what that means and, and the risk it puts at, at people in a variety of groups um, in. And so, yeah, I, I think we're going to, we'll get through this. You know, it's happened way too often. Um, you know, we have to also take into account the proliferation of guns in yeah. this country. I, I was looking at just a list of all of the the mass shooting incidents have happened in the last, I guess, I don't know, four or five years or so. And every one of them, every one of them has uh, an, an AR-15, a long rifle, um, you know, that is a part of the, uh, that is a part of the equation. And so that combination of, of hate and, um, you know, weaponry in the hands of, you know, really kind of addled people leads to the, um, the kind of incident that uh, we are, you know, we have, we're dealing with yet again. Yeah, when we were talking about sort of the distance of where community sits and where our policies are heading, I did reflect a little bit on the NRA 
and even its membership would like some common sense gun laws um, enacted. And so again, we see the separation from what sort of the, the structure is from what the membership or the community is interested in. And that's another one that, and I often say, I mean, this is not, gun violence is not something that we should all become proximate to before we start acting and making a difference. Um, it is something that we can do today to push change. Yeah. I mean, what happened, what just recently happened was not something that only impacted um, you know, people in Colorado Springs, gay people in Colorado Springs, or gay people in Colorado. I mean, that impacted all of us. Yeah. Those are our, our, those are our neighbors, our, our fellow citizens. Um, you know, residents of of this of this country, and we should feel uh, as impacted by what happened there uh, as what happened in you know Uvalde. Um, you know what happened. You know the tree of life in Pittsburgh. I mean, these are all things. These are these are our friends. These are our neighbors. These are these are our people who have um, been the subjects, the objects of uh, of this violence. And it shouldn't take something in your neighborhood, something you know um, happens to your, as you define your community, um, your group, uh, to, to feel a, a sense of concern and a desire to be involved in the solutions um, to the problems that lead. Um, to these these heinous acts. There's enough there now for all of us to be concerned, for all of us to ask ourselves, what are you doing to counter um, that hate? What are you doing to make this nation safe uh, for everybody? With women's rights, you talked about the Supreme Court in the book. You also talk about the courts and these lifetime appointments. And, you know, we age differently now than they did when those laws and that was put in place. Would you mind sharing a little bit on what you might recommend and what you see as maybe an opportunity with the Supreme Court? Sure. You know, um, when our republic was founded, we decided, and it makes sense, to insulate judges, federal judges, by giving them life tenure. Um, and so most people in the beginning parts of the republic um, left the Supreme Court when they died. Um, you know, we didn't live nearly as long as we, they, they didn't live nearly as long as we do now. Um, but over time, we have lived longer. And so now we have people who get appointed to the court in their early 50s, late 40s, and they can stay on the court for 30 and 40 years. And I think that's entirely too long for somebody to be in an unelected position with that much power. People now leave the court. They decide when they're going to leave the court and they try to do these strategic retirements. And this is Democrats as well as Republicans. This is not just, you know, one side or the other. Um, they leave when they have a president in place who they think will put uh, in their seat somebody who will share um, their worldview. And so my proposal is that we have term limits, that you serve on the Supreme Court for a period of, uh, of 18 years. It, I, as I note in the book, it's one of those instances, rare instances, where the Chief Justice and I are in the, the same place. He says that we should have term limits of 15 years. I say 18, because I also say that we should have a system where uh, presidents put in put somebody on the Supreme Court in the first year of his or her term and also the third year of his or her term. So every uh, president would appoint a, a justice first year, third year of his or her term. Uh, so every president would get at least two if you only serve you know one uh, one term and four if you serve two terms. And if you ser 
make it 18 years, that would mean that over the short term, the court would expand. But ultimately, at 18 years, and with that one first and third year appointment, the court would shrink um, back down to, uh, to, to nine members. So I think the expansion of the court would make sense in the short term. And I also think that you know, depressurizing the um, the selection and confirmation process by making it something that happens in a more regular way would mean that you'd end up with a court that um, was not as disconnected with people serving 25 and 30 years and was almost like a monastery up there now. And we'd have a court that would still be insulated, still, you know, not subject to the whims of, uh, you know, of our politics, but at least more connected to um, the desires of the American people. Because I think as I what the court is doing now in a whole range of areas is, um, I think, first off, not principled, not consistent with precedent. It's a function of personnel on the court, but they're doing things that are um, inconsistent with the desires of, and inconsistent with the best interests of the uh, of the American people. I have a couple of questions that I got forwarded to me. One is, what role did uh, redistricting efforts play in last week's election results? Do you have an idea of how that may have um, impacted it? Yeah, the work that we did um, at the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, we started back in January of 2017 to try to make the redistricting process more fair in uh, 2021, 2022, uh, I think it's had a dramatic impact. Um, redistricting is fundamentally different this decade than it was in 2011. Uh, we saw state legislatures flip. Um, you certainly witnessed in, in in Minnesota, you know, what happened there with one of the chambers of, uh, of the state legislature there, flips in, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. The New York Times looked at the districts that were created as a result of this most recent redistricting process and said that 75% of them um, were fair. And that's a substantial increase from um, the rankings from, you know, a decade ago. But it also means that 25% of the districts were considered unfair, um, considered to be um, gerrymandered. And you see those um, gerrymandered, um, partisan and racial gerrymandered um, uh, districting plans, um, mostly in Republican controlled states like Texas, um, Georgia, Florida, uh, Wisconsin. And so the process was certainly better, way better than it was um, a decade ago. We saw results um, of that in this, you know, this past, the past midterms that we just experienced where uh, election deniers were defeated, you know, all over the country, um, where you have uh, a more fair system and where you can't, where you have legislative houses that are more consistent with the makeup of, of the people, a house of representatives, that again is more fair than it was um, in, in 2012 when Democrats won uh, 1.4 million more votes than Republicans in 2012 and ended up with a 33 seat deficit. They were in the minority by 33 seats, although they won 1.4 million votes. Um, this time around, we have a, led, a, a House of Representatives that's basically split. I mean, there's going to be a four or five vote margin, something like that. Um, that is more reflective, I think, of the um, of the United States. And had those districts been more fair in Texas, Georgia, Florida, um, you would have ended up with Democrats actually controlling uh, the House of Representatives. So a lot of work that was done that I think was very positive, but there's still um, more work to do. How can uh, we best address the massive efforts of disinformation targeted at our electorate? 
Yeah, that is a really, really good question. And the impact of that disinformation, um, I think, has been underappreciated. Um, you know, if you get into a silo, these echo chambers, where you're only hearing, you know, one kind of voices and those voices are peddling huge amounts of disinformation. You then make electoral choices on the basis of that information, and that skews, um, you know, the results of our election. And so I think people have to, um, you know, tear yourself away from whatever it is, that favorite channel you always watch and watch a wide range of things on television. People need to read more, um, you know, and again, from a variety of, of sources. But I also think that there is going to be the need for some kind of um, some kind of regulation. You know, um, we have a this this thing, the fairness doctrine. You know, where television stations have to carry certain amounts of programming and have to make sure that they're trying to do things in a in a fairly balanced way. I, I think we have to start looking at that in terms of the internet. Um, you know, so many of us, and especially young people, get their information from the internet. Um, and, you know, you can, either from foreign actors or from, you know, domestic actors, they can do things with knowing what the algorithms are like, you know, push you in certain directions, suppress, um, you know, the, the dissemination of other, of other kinds of information. And so I, I think that, you know, I, I would hope that the folks who, you know, who run these these big internet information dispensers will do something voluntarily. My guess is that over time, um, in the absence of movement by them, that government is actually going to have to um, do something at, uh, at regulating. So I think there are things that we can do um, to expose ourselves to, to more and, and to decrease the, uh, the impact of, uh, of disinformation. But I also think there's a role for, um, for regulation um, as well. You know, we have folks that are arguing free speech. And so this is not about freedom of speech. It's about uh, making sure that what is being said is accurate uh, and factual. Is that really the the line as we're, as yeah. the listeners are, you know, I don't want anyone telling me what I can say or whatever, but no, we're not no, talking no. about that. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, everybody yeah. ought to be free to say whatever it is that, you know, that you want to say. Um, but, you know, we should all agree on kind of what the facts are, and then we can argue about what we want to do with the facts. You know, disinformation is not about disseminating views. It's about disseminating untruths. And, you know, even there, I don't want to be, you know, some First Amendment, um, you know, <laughs> destroyer, because, yeah, even I defend the ability of people to say things that, you know, in fact, aren't true. But we have to understand in this digital age in which we um, live, the dissemination of untruths can really be spread quickly, widely, and have a really negative impact um, on our on our society. And so I, I think we need to have rules that respect the First Amendment, but also rules that um, recognize the, the different environment in which we now um, in which we now operate. So part of the the misinformation, and I think you touched on it a little bit, is people meddling in our election. And so how how is it possible? <laughs> For people to meddle, Russia, to meddle in the election as much as they have, like what precautions do we need to prevent that from happening? 
Yeah, I think there that really is on the um, on the providers. Okay. Um, you know, to the the, the hosts, the, the, these folks on, on the internet, they are they've got the best and the brightest working for them in you know in Silicon Valley and, and in other places. And there are ways in which they can figure out, you know, who are bots, you know, who are not real people, and um, and also figure out, you know, where is this information coming from? You know, it was interesting. I was in Wisconsin, um, I guess during the 2018 election, 2018 maybe, I think it was 2018, um, and uh, uh, there was a police officer involved in a, in a shooting of a young black man, and there was tons of stuff, you know, that got into the Wisconsin ecosphere there through the internet. And they were able to trace a lot of that stuff to see that a lot of what was being said about, you know, trying to split the African-American community from the police was actually coming from Russia. Mm. Now, if you could do that in that particular case, I understand this is going to be resource intense, but the stakes are so high that I think that's the kind of thing that you have to be able to do. And to the extent that you can identify, um, you know, foreign sources as being um, the ones who are sharing that disinformation. Now, they don't have a First Amendment right. You know, countries outside these borders, people outside these borders, non-citizens outside these borders don't have First Amendment rights. And so cutting the cord there is something that I think that we certainly ought to be doing. And there, I think you have to have public-private partnerships. Um, you know, folks who um, run these internet disseminators of information working with, um, in particular, the federal government to identify um, and then to isolate um, these uh, attempts at disinformation that come from uh, from offshore. Do you think that the providers of those resources on the internet understand the stakes? You know, um, that's a really interesting question. And I'm not totally sure what the answer is. I mean, it's certainly something that I, in my interactions with them, have said, which is to say, look, there's a couple of realities you have to face. One is that there's a lot of disinformation out there. And two, either you're going to regulate it or you're going to have regulation imposed upon you. Now, I can't say it's going to happen over the next year, the next two years. But at some point, at some point, the system is going to say, government is going to say that uh, you have not regulated this sufficiently and therefore we are going to do it. And my pitch to them has always been, it is much better to, for, to have self-effective self-regulation than to have government-imposed regulation that might not be sensitive to or knowledgeable about um, you know, the intricacies of, um, you know, of, of your business. So in chapter nine, you ask a question and I'm just going to repeat it to you because because it really sat with me. And it was, how do we make the Senate better reflective of the will of the people in its current form? And I do think we've touched on this a little bit, but I was really fascinated sort of by that. And I think it has to go with where the lines are drawn um, and some other suggestions that you made. Could you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we look at... Um, this great experiment of ours that we called America, we call America. Um, and it is, you know, we're an exceptional nation. We're the most exceptional nation I think that's, you know, that's ever existed. Um, and yet, you know, we are almost 250 years old and we're dealing with a constitution that was, you know, produced back in the, the 18th century. And it has a ton of good stuff in it. But as the nation has grown, as it has expanded, as more people have become part of our democracy, um, some of the things that were put in place back then, I think, need to be examined and need to be updated. If you look, for instance, at our Senate, 
uh, we say two people, uh, two senators per uh, per state, part of the Great Compromise, and that that that's fine. Um, but we now have sit you know in place um, where Wyoming gets you know two senators, and they have like 600,000 people, and California gets two senators, thirty five million people, something like that. And so that really that becomes really kind of a, a disparity there. The Senate is, you know, really a powerful, powerful place. And, you know, we see now that, you know, it, you could end up with people who represent just about 20 percent of the nation's population can control the majority of the Senate just because of the way in which, you know, we have that two senators per state rule. And so to change it would mean changing the Constitution. Um, that I don't think is likely to happen, but you can just by legislation admit, and this is my proposal, um, Washington, D.C. as a state, Puerto Rico um, a, as a state, which would mean that certainly from Washington, D.C., you're likely to get two more Democratic senators, which would, I think, deal with the imbalance that we see now, and potentially a couple of um, Democratic senators from Puerto Rico, although Puerto Rico has enacted on a, an island-wide basis. They've uh, elected on an, an island-wide basis on Republicans a, as well. So that's one of the things. We also need to end the filibuster, um, which has allowed a minority in the, the, the Senate, you know, about 40%, can say, can tell the other 60%, uh, and again, represent a small number uh, of the American people, that something that the American people want to have happen is not going to happen because this minority in the Senate says that the Senate can't um, you know, can't vote. We a lot of people think that you know to get things passed passed in the Senate, you have to have sixty percent. That's just a made up rule. You know, that's a, that was not really used an awful lot until the last you know, 10, 15 years or so. And the founders, when they were considering whether or not to require super majorities or just majority rule, having had the experience with the Articles of Confederation, um, they said, no, majorities um, are, are what we should have. Otherwise, the minority will have too much power. And that's what we see in the um, in the filibuster in the Senate. And also with regard to the way in which we have a lot senators, we give a, an awful lot of power to the minorities that frustrate um, the will of the majorities. Now, minorities always have to be protected. And that is another part of our you know, constitutional um, scheme. But you can't give ultimate power um, to um, to minorities. So you talked about gerrymandering and you used the word cracking and packing. And I think we talked about this with the, um, the university um, story, but I'd never heard packing as a concept before. So cracking is essentially taking an area, right, and just splitting it in half to reduce the likelihood of representation, right? Like to, to maintain party control. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. You, you take a group of people and you put them in a whole variety of different districts and therefore you dilute their power. Instead of having like at North Carolina A&T, you know, one large black community that would have a lot of power, you put them in two different districts, which decreases their power by, you know, by 50%. That's called cracking. That's the pack. And then the packing part is packing it all together. Is that it? Yeah. You draw lines in such okay. a way so that in Alabama, where um, African-Americans make up about 27% of the population and should, if you just do the math, there's seven districts, they should have probably two um, districts that uh, would allow for African-Americans to pick who their representative is. You draw the lines in such a way so that you pack 
all of the African-Americans into one district. And therefore, instead of having the ability to elect two congressmen, they only have the ability to elect um, one, uh, a court in Alabama, three judge court in Alabama, including two Trump appointed judges said that that violated the Civil Rights Act of 1965. The Supreme Court uh, now has that case before it and we'll see what the court does with, uh, with that decision. And then the last piece, I think, around what you define as a crisis in representation would be around um, the presidential elections where we are and have elected presidents that have not had um, the most votes. Is there something that we could do about that so that that position, that that great role that we need in our country is actually more representative of what the electorate wants? Yeah, you know, we have we don't elect presidents by the popular vote. We elect presidents through the Electoral College, which was put in place by the founders because they did not trust the ability of regular Americans to make wise decisions. And so they wanted to have them cast votes uh, to pick electors who would ultimately decide who the president would be. And we've had a few instances, certainly we've had two in recent years where, you know, presidents George W. Bush and Donald Trump um, did not win the popular vote, but won the electoral college, and as a result, became president, even though they didn't get the majority of the votes. And as I say in the book, you know, we we're the only industrialized country in the world that does this. And you know, when we held elections, whether it's for class president, you know, PTA president, it's always like whoever got the most votes is the person you know who wins. And so I think we need to change that. Now, again, we need a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College. And with the filibuster in place, that becomes difficult. And trying to get you know, three quarters of the states to go along with would also be difficult. But this is what you can do. There's this thing called the National uh, Popular Aid Compact, which says that instead of states casting their electoral votes for who won that particular state, every state would cast its electoral votes for who won the national popular vote. And mm-hmm. if you do that, then the person who won the popular vote would also win the greatest number of electoral votes. And you would do away with these, you know, these anomalies that we have seen, you know, twice in um, in recent years. This is something that is being considered by the states. And once you get to 270 electoral states that total 270 electoral votes, this then goes into effect. You don't need to have all states will agree to that. Only that states that met, come up with 270 electoral votes, because that is actually the number that you need to become president. And I think we're at about 193 electoral votes now with regard to the states that have agreed um, to it. And so I think Michigan is the next state that will um, consider it. And then it's going to become more difficult because you're going to have to get into some um, some Republican states to go along with it. But we got to come up with something so that the will of the people can be expressed Um, with regard to the one office, the one office that we have in this country that is supposed to be a national leader and not have it decided by potentially, as we have had seen twice, a minority of the people. The majority of the people ought to elect uh, who the the president of the United States is. Mm -hmm. That seems common sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, class presidents, when you were in the third grade (laughs) or the fourth grade and you wanted to pick the class president, if Mary got the most votes, she was the class president. You didn't go Mary through, you didn't vote and then pick an electoral college to decide, uh, well, you know, Mary, for whatever reason, didn't have enough whatever. And so John's going to be the class president, even though Mary got more votes. Mm-hmm. So this is a question that came from uh, Resma. What does the infrastructure look like in order to get an anti-Blackness hate crime bill passed? 
Yeah, it's um, we again need to make sure that our structures are consistent with the desires of uh, of the people. Um, and you know, we expanded the um, the hate crimes bill to include. Um, Made, we made it more difficult the way the hate crimes bill was originally passed um, to include um, people of color, um, at least the level of intent that you had to show, and to include people of, uh, from the LGBTQ community. It's something that I fought for when I was deputy attorney general during the Clinton years. It did, ultimately didn't pass the expansion until um, I was attorney general. Uh, and so we have a much more robust um, hate crimes bill that allows federal prosecutors to be involved in these crimes in ways that were not possible before the passage of or the expansion of the um, hate crimes legislation that happened during the um, the Obama years. Is there anything that the current president could do to advance either on some of the things that we touched on or on um, the the hate, the anti-hate crime bills. Is there anything that Biden's administration can do at this point to forward those those efforts? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly executive orders. I mean, I suspect that with a Republican House, you're not going to see much legislation passed over the next um, two years. But the president still has a lot of executive power so that he can sign executive orders. Um, there is still the Justice Department that has the ability to decide how it's going to deploy its resources, what things it's going to prioritize, where it's going to place um, federal agents. Um, and, and so the Justice Department, I mean, that was one of the things that I made a priority, the anti-hate crimes um, you know, action by the Justice Department. President Obama signed a number of executive orders in that regard. And so President Biden will have that ability uh, Merrick Garland at the Justice Department will have that um, will have that ability. Working with other executive branch agencies as well. I, I think, as I said, realistically, we're not likely to see um, much by way of legislation in this regard because of the split that we now have in Congress: Republicans controlling the House of Representatives and Democrats controlling um, the Senate. What are your thoughts on the Supreme Court's deliberation regarding affirmative action in education? Yeah, I'm really worried about where the court is going to go in that case based on the um, the questions that um, we heard during oral argument. You know, the notion that um, colleges and universities cannot take into account um, race to try to make their campuses more diverse, which I think enhances learning. Um, you know, if you have a homogenous group of, of students listening to a, a professor or studying you know a certain number of books their learning is enhanced when they're interacting with students who are different um, than they are and you know we have had affirmative action you know for a, a long time um, if you are the son or daughter of a person who gives money to you know an ivy league college you're more likely to get in that's affirmative action. If you're an athlete and um, you know you get to go to a great state university, that's affirmative action. Um, there's a whole range of ways in which we have had affirmative action. The Supreme Court doesn't want to allow affirm race to be at least a factor, not not a sole determinant, but a factor in the admissions um, determination. Now we've said you can't do quotas, and I think that makes a great deal of sense. But I think we should you know, recognize that we're not yet at the point uh, where we need to be when it comes to all things um, racial. 
and that there are still inequities that we have to deal with, and that the learning experience is enhanced by having people from different geographies, um, different different demographic groups, um, different economic groups, you know, all a part of, um, of the experience. We shouldn't admit to our best institutions simply people who score the highest on their their SATs, you know, I mean, you got to take you want a whole range of, of people to be a part of that um, of that academic experience. But I'm really concerned that this court is going to say that you cannot consider race um, when it comes to making determinations um, about who you um, who you admit that I think is um, I think that's just a wrong, a wrong decision. Is there anything that we can do as we prepare for the decision? Um, are there actions that can be taken? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that you're going to see a lot of colleges and, and law schools, professional schools say, all right, you know, what we're not going to do, we're not going to rely on standardized tests. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to not listen to the SATs or to, to the LSATs, the ACTs. Um, we are going to look at, you know, your academic record. We're going to look at where you come from. Um, and so they will, in essence, come up with ways in which they keep their um, their admitted student classes diverse without specifically um, being hindered by um, these, these statistical things that point in, you know, one and only one direction. So I, I you know, my, that's my hope. On the other hand, what we have seen where um, race was taken out as a, a possible consideration in the University of California system, we saw a, a precipitous drop in the number of African-Americans and Hispanic students uh, who actually enrolled in the University of California system. Now, I think I understand there's been a slight uptick recently, but the number has really gone down dramatically. And that is the concern um, that I have, that we will see that dramatic drop, at least in the uh, in the short term. But I, I suspect that the academic community is going to try to come up with ways in which they continue to keep their um, their classes diverse while following the dictates of the um, this expected Supreme Court ruling. Yeah. And the dramatic, I think I read, I think I was reading about this. I think it was like a 30 percent drop. Yeah, it's it's it, I mean, it's it's really tremendous in, in, yeah. in California. The numbers, the number of people who uh, who are of color and who go to the University of Cal University of Cal system is fundamentally different now than it was before um, that proposition was passed in uh, in California. You know, I just have these moments where I just can hardly believe like the reversal <laughs> that is happening in this country. And I don't consider myself to be Pollyannish, but I feel like I've been, I'm being disrupted in a way that's really concerning as a person of color, as a woman, you know, as, as a mother. Like, I just feel like what, you know, the actions, I mean, I think it's local is probably the best place is, is where we started from is, you know, exercising our right to vote um, and having um, more broadly our system understanding the political power that we hold and acting into it collectively, that we can't be passive players in what's happening because it feels very designed to reverse us and to maintain power. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we have to be engaged. I mean, the, the reality is, is this, if we are passive, that means that we leave a vacuum that will be filled by people who are, you know, less committed to American ideals, less um less idealistic, um, you know, more politically inclined. You know, the vast majority of the American people 
agree on a substantial number of issues. You'd never believe that if you listen to you know, the news. But those people who are in the minority are often the loudest. Um, and then with the spread of disinformation, um, they have the ability to you know, engage in political action and get political power that's not commensurate with um, their representation in the overall population or even with regard to you know, how the American people feel about a particular issue. I mean, you think about this, the American people, like 80, 90% agree that you should do background checks before anybody has the ability to buy a gun. I mean, that's just kind of common sense. And yet we don't see, you know, these bills passed in the states in our federal by our federal government because we have a loud minority um, coupled with, you know, gerrymandered political power that thwarts the majority, thwarts the will of the um, of the majority, uh, and then you see that in a whole range of uh, a whole range of, of issues, whether it's you know reproductive choice, you know uh, protection of voting rights, um, as I said, gun safety, gun safety measures, um, you know climate. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of places where the American people get it. I mean, the American people are not stupid. You know, they under, they see the world around them. They understand what fairness is. Um, and I think our political leadership has, uh, you know, has has failed us. I just I was just reminded I did a gun buyback um, some years ago, and it was more of a, a way of me sort of bringing full circle. I lost a cousin to gun violence and was working in an organization. And we did this gun buyback. And um, we wanted to give um, the the pieces of the guns to artists to make a statement on on the violence that has been perpetrated against them and their families to just make a broader statement. And so we go, we partner with the fire stations. We're in there and I pull up to go in, right? We're giving um, small amounts of money, depending on what kind of weapon you bring in. And someone from a pickup pulls up across the street, offering more money for the guns no, like we had the police department there. We're doing everything like I think is proper to do. And here it is that you can buy guns out of a pickup right here in the neighborhood. And it was legal. I just could hardly believe it. I think I conceptually knew it, but I think being in the experience, I'm like, how is this possible? Right. Well, that's what I was talking about before, about this notion of background checks. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, we have a background check system in place now, but it doesn't cover the private um, sale of guns from one person to another or doesn't ex- deal with um, the sales that happen at gun shows, you know? Um, and, and so, again, the American people say, well, you know, if you're going to sell a gun to somebody, you ought to make sure that the person getting it is doesn't have some kind of protective order against him, you know, is not involved in some kind of domestic violence thing, is not a, a felon, you know, a whole range of things that uh, the American people agree on. And again, so our, we, yeah, we have a background check system that everybody agrees needs to be um, expanded. And yet the minority, uh, and it's not even with the minority, you know, you look at the NRA. I mean, NRA members, I, last poll I saw over a majority of them are of, of the same mind, you know, that you know, we ought to make sure that, you know, people who acquire guns don't have these disabilities that should keep them from um, getting a gun. Again, like I said, felons, um, you know, people involved in domestic violence. I mean, there's a whole range of things that if we were more careful, um, you know, banning the use 
or the the, the, the sale of, of assault weapons. You know, yeah. we could make this nation safer and the American people agree upon that. Yeah. So I, you know, I work in philanthropy and um, so one of my questions almost always is, you know, do you think that there is a role for philanthropy in moving sort of a healthy democracy forward? And if so, what would you recommend for how people are are yielding their influence and their resources towards a healthier, safer nation, really? You know, I think there's definitely a role for the philanthropic community to be involved in protecting, enhancing our democracy. Um, you know, and uh, I understand the reticence that some have because they say, well, you know, that's going to get us into politics. We're 501c3. We're not supposed to be involved in political activities. But the reality is that um, our democracy is fragile. Um, our democracy has to be protected. And so philanthropies can find ways in which you are supporting things that are really nonpartisan, but are pro-democracy, you know, um, supporting like as the League of Women Voters does, you know, making sure that our voting system is fair. It doesn't favor one party or the other, but just make it sure that that people have the ability to acquire ballots, cast a ballots and cast ballots that will ultimately um, be counted try to ensure that, you know, polling places are open, that there are sufficient numbers of, of polling places. Again, that doesn't favor one party um, or the other. But yeah, I do think that there is a role for the philanthropic community to play in our democracy protection efforts. And, you know, and he, he, here's the deal. People say, you know, uh, I'm being an alarmist. I'm being hyperbolic when I say that, you know, our democracy is at risk. Well, you know, history tells us and you, know, you look at Europe in the 20th century, fascism rose there, not because fascism was strong, but because the defense of democracy was weak. Mm. And it doesn't mean that we'll have a dictator here in the United States, but you could render elections every two years, every four years, every six years, you could render them meaningless if our democracy is not, you know, is not protected. You will still go to the ballot boxes and, you know, we'll still pull levers and vote for people, but the results can almost be predetermined and our democracy um, crippled unless we are willing to protect it. And it means, I think, that the philanthropic community has to figure out a way in which it can be involved in that effort. Because I think you say in the book that essentially what's happening now is that our politicians are speaking to the extreme on both ends. Right, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, as a result of gerrymandering in particular, um, you know, you, you crack and pack districts so that you come up with safe seats for people in, in one party, which means that people in the Republican Party speak only to the folks on the right. People in the Democratic Party tend to speak to people on, on the left. And you're worried not about a general election in a gerrymandered seat. You're worried about a primary challenge. And if you're worried about a primary challenge, then you want to make sure that if you're a Republican, you're as far right as you can be so that you don't have a challenger. If you are seen working with your Democratic colleagues to try to come up with a, a solution to a particular problem that's seen as a sign of weakness and invites a, a primary challenge. And so nothing gets done. And the American people see that nothing gets done in our political system. And that breeds cynicism and a, a lack of faith or trust or belief in, in, in government, which is just not good for us generally and not good for our democracy, um, you know, most specifically. What is giving you hope right now? Because I think hope is necessary because it just, grief feels deep and yeah. um, there's a lot happening. What What is bringing you hope? 
you know, it's, it's like I say in the book or our, our, our unfinished march. Um, what gives me hope are a couple of things. First, our history. You know, I mean, the first part of the book deals with the historical part. Um, and people say, oh, I don't want to read history. No, it's really interesting. History. It's really good. You're going to find out some interesting about some interesting people and things that they did in their time. But our history shows us that every generation of Americans, when faced with challenges to our democracy, came up with ways in which they did defend democracy, whether the threats were internal uh, or whether they came from external places. You know, we fought wars to protect um, democracy. Uh, we enfranchised greater numbers of people in our country to protect democracy. And so my, our history tells us that every, generations of American, every generation of Americans has risen to the challenge. And I think that this generation of Americans will rise to that challenge as well. The other thing that gives me great hope is young people. Uh, young people... Um, you know, I still think of myself as young at heart, but I'm, I can't say that I'm a young person. But this younger generation is not burdened um, by the racial baggage um, that, you know, other generations have had. Um, they are more accepting of diversity. Um, they are more inclusive in their view of society. Um, and I think that um, as they get more politically involved, more civically um, engaged, coupled with that history that, um, you know, that, that gives me hope. I, I think those two things will ultimately get us to the, uh, to that better place. And, you know, I, I think that we have to be optimistic. Optimism leads to activism. Pessimism leads to inaction. Um, so there's no reason to be um, pessimistic. There's every reason um, to be optimistic. There's every reason uh, to be engaged. All right, Eric Holder, our unfinished March. It was a great book, I have to say. It was really good. I hope that um, our listeners' uh, curiosities were piqued on the topics that we touched on. Grab the book. It it was very good for someone who's not a policy wonk like myself, but I also think um, others that are very much into policy, community, and democracy will enjoy it. Um, so I am highly encouraging um, readers um, to the book. Um, any other resources that you would recommend that people would check could check out if they want to get more involved in, in these issues? Well, I mean, one other book I would recommend is a book called The Second Founding by a guy named Eric Foner. Um, really examines the, now this is a little more wonky, examines the, uh, the Civil War amendments and the impact that it has had you know, immediately and then the impact that those amendments have had on our, you know, in our country. Um, but, you know, there's also want to get a better sense of the, uh, of, of the civil rights movement, you know, PBS did a great series a while ago called Eyes on the Prize, which you can still you can still get. I mean, it's I don't know eight nine parts or something like that. You spend eight or nine hours watching that. Watch an hour a, a day, you will be shocked by um, the, the history that you see, um, the optimism that it will generate in you. Um, but the other thing I would also suggest to people is to just get civically engaged and find. You know, organizations that are involved in the work. Um, you know, if all of us get more civically engaged, we can move this nation to that better place. It doesn't mean you have to do political things, you know, get involved with, you know, getting attention to the young people in your community who are starved for the kind of attention that every American, you know, boy or girl is, in, is entitled to. It won't be an easy thing. You know, you have busy personal lives and busy professional lives. But if you find an hour, a couple hours a week to do that, you're going to feel better about yourself and you're going to make this nation better. 
And that's Eric Holder and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And thanks for listening to Conversations with Shonda.